1: What is useful in this time of global uncertainty? Humility, creativity, empathy, activism. What keeps me from despair is singing in a chorus with others. These days over remote connection as we breathe together and blend our voices in harmony. Along with singing, poetry keeps the wolves from my door. Good poems soften my heart and help me face another day with curiosity, wonder, and hope. A good poem gives me another lens in which to view the world. Poetry helps bring what is often unseen into view. It can be the observation of a single ant making its way across a laptop computer or turtles in moonlight. Poetry can open us to feel our connection to one another and to nature. It gives us the opportunity to recalibrate our perspective on our place in the world. Today, we'll be exploring the power of poetry in these stressful and turbulent times with our guest, Jane Hirschfield. Jane Hirschfield is the author of nine books of poetry and two collections of essays and has edited and co-translated four books presenting the work of world poets from the past. Her books have received the Poetry Center Book Award, the California Book Award, and the Donald Hall Jane Kenyon Prize of American Poetry. Her poems appear in a wide range of prestigious outlets. A resident of Northern California, she's a Chancellor Emerita, of the Academy of American Poets. She presents her work at literary and interdisciplinary events worldwide. Her most recent book of poetry is entitled Ledger. I'm speaking with Jane Hirschfield at her home in Northern California by remote connection. Please join us for the next hour as we explore how poems can be stepping stones on A Map to Wonder with our guest, Jane Hirschfield. I'm Justine willis toms I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Welcome, Jane. I'm so pleased to be here with you, Justine. Thank you. I'm so pleased to have you once more. Uh, I would like to begin by asking you about the title of this new book of poetry. Ledger, what is the significance of that title?
2: I've been feeling the past few years with all of their crises, let alone the current one of the pandemic, as an absolutely unaccountable time. It is unfathomable to me that the crisis of the biosphere the fracturing of our sense of shared fate and social connection have been going on in the way that they have. And so when you're facing into an unaccountable time, the only thing I know to do is to try to take some account of it. Uh, And so this is a book very much, a ledger book is an accounting. It's an accounting of the darkness. It's an attempt to find my way, which I really had to do, navigating poem by poem over these years, to some sense of the balance between the recognition of cataclysm and the appreciation of this still beautiful world with its abundance of treasures and gifts that I still open my eyes into every day. And so it's a ledger of Perhaps despair and
1: praise. Despair and praise—two uh, kind of on, the, on a on a teeter totter uh, as we kind of are tossed hither and yon between the two. I think uh, I'm reminded of there was um, an interview that you gave to um, Colleen Morgan Bush at Orion Magazine. She wrote that you had said this. It really struck me. You said after writing some poems that really kind of would be the despair part of the teeter-totter, and you said that in writing within that poem what arose in you was that it's simply rude not to be grateful for the praise uh, for and praise all the beauties still now with us, and then you go on to talk about out your window. Do you do you recall call that? And could you? Uh, oh,
2: I, I I recall the interview, but much more I recall the experience, and it has to do with two very specific poems in the book, both of which were written quite late in the book, and so the the poem which led to that realization, was one called Hazal for the End of Time. And it's the darkest poem I have ever written. It frightened me, and it left me astonished that I could even arrive at where the poem arrives at, and wondering how could I feel this way? It was shocking to me. But the recognition of the shock came after I had described to a friend, I'd said, I just wrote the most frightening thing I've ever written. And she said, oh, can I see it? And so I emailed it off to her. And in the interval between sending it to her and hearing back from her was when I entered the realization of the sheer rudeness of only despairing when this generous existence is still a fabric that I am part of, that we all are part of. And out of that shock came what became the last poem in the book, a poem called my debt, in which I quite explicitly apologize to the world for writing, as the poem says, in such black ink. Ah. Um, I can read you the two poems if you I like. would
1: love that. I would love that. And I'm sure our listeners
2: would too. Thank you. So to begin our conversation with the, <laughs> the most frightening and darkest poem I have ever written, I should tell listeners, because the word "Hazal" is probably not familiar to everyone, that a Hazal is an Urdu or Persian poetry form written in long couplets with repeating words at the end of many of the lines. This is a loose Hazal, it is not following the form in any way perfectly, but that's rather the point. And the title Hazal for the End of Time is also an allusion to the uh, famous piece of music written by Messian when he was in a prisoner of war camp, Quartet for the End of Time. Break anything, a window, a pie crust, a glacier, it will break open. A voice cannot speak, cannot sing, without lips, teeth, lamina propria, coming open. Some breakage can barely be named, hardly be spoken. Rains stopped, Roof said. Fires, forests, cities, cellars, peeled open. Tears stopped, eyes said. An unhearable music fell instead from them, a clarinet stripped of its breathing, the cello abandoned. The violin grieving, a hand too long empty, held open. The imperial piano, its 89th, 90th, 91st strings, unsummoned, unwoken. Watching, listening, was like that. The low, wordless humming of being unwoven. Fish vanished. Bees vanished, bats whitened, Arctic ice opened. Hands wanted more time. Hands thought we had time. Spending time's rivers, its meadows, its mountains, its instruments tuning their silence, its deep mantle broken. Earth stumbled within and outside us. Orca, thistle, kestrel withheld their instruction. Rock said, burning ones, pry your own blindness open. Death said, now I too am orphan. So, the ledger side of this poem is the side of absolute climate catastrophe. And I believe that we will not change our ways, our human choices, until we fully take in the consequence of where we are headed. And I know the poem, it does exaggerate, you know, not everything will die. There are resilient species, cockroaches, rats, even human beings are resilient species. But that last statement of the poem, the idea that death itself might be orphaned if there were no living microbe left for it to inhabit, that terrified me. And when I sent the poem to my friend, I thought, how can I darken her day with these thoughts? And so, shaken in a way by this blackness, of future envisionment. I then wrote this next poem, My Debt. And before we before we read that, because
1: we'll run out of time in this segment, uh, I wanted uh, to, to just say about that, those last words before we move on to the next poem, uh, death said, now I too am an orphan. Just Radiates it just like hits us in in the heart in the in the chest and that that phrase it's just curious how how it even came to you that to to talk about even death is an orphan
2: well, the thing about writing a poem is I never know how anything comes to me. Um, this poem was so sound driven that part of why the word orphan came was because it rhymes with open and broken and summon and all of those others. But this is the deep collaboration of language, music, psyche, ideas, uh, that you end up saying things you wouldn't say without the music of poetry supporting you.
1: I want to remind, thank you, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Jane Hirshfield, and she is the author of Ledger, a book of poetry, and uh, her newest edition, her newest book of poems. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Mm -hmm. I'm here with poet Jane Hirschfield, and she is the author of many books of poetry, including Ledger. And we're talking about two poems, one that shows us uh, the teeter-totter of despair, and now we're going to go into a second poem that's kind of a, gives us more hope. Can, can you talk about this one and then read it, please?
2: So, My Debt is the poem I think of as the bookend poem to Chazal for the End of Time, and it's also the final poem in the book. And so, I believe it's appropriate when one is taking a ledger of one's uh, relationship to existence and one's sense of existence, even in this most catastrophic time quietly catastrophic for some of us the lucky of us but universally catastrophic to end your ledger with the sense of debt to the world feels to me quite appropriate in your introductory remarks you used the word humility and that has been for me a word much in my mind for some years now. And I think one needs to embrace a sense of humility, even in the face of one's own despair. You have to be humble about your despair. I can't know what's going to happen to the world. None of us knows what's going to happen to the world. Uh, There's an earlier poem in the book, I Wanted to Be Surprised. Uh, This coronavirus has surprised us all, one of the odd things it's shown us is it is possible for all humanity to decide to do something together and pretty much do it. Who would have thought we could make such a change so quickly as we have?
1: You know, uh, I often think about the, the coronavirus as the power of the small, I mean yes. it took the smallest that we can't even see it with our eyes the the power of this smallest life form to bring us all to this inner connection you You talk about humility, and I know humility you've you've said in at other times that it is it, it loosens the delusion of separateness
2: yes. Of separateness and of self importance. But I think I should read the poem and we should come back to these things. Or, oh, good. Or our listeners yes. will have forgotten what we're talking about. Thank you. So, so here's the poem My Debt. Like all who believe in the senses, I was an accountant, copyist, statistician, not registrar, witness, permitted to touch the leaf of a thistle, the trembling work of a spider. To ponder the Hubble's recordings. It did not matter if I believed in the party of particle or of wave, as I carried no weapon. It did not matter if I believed. I weighed ashes, actions, cities that glittered like rubies on the scales I was given, calibrated in units of fear and amazement. I wrote the word it, the word is, I entered the debt that is owed to the real. Forgive, spine-covered leaf, soft-bodied spider, octopus lifting one curious tentacle back toward the hand of the diver that in such black ink I set down your flammable colors. So, so
1: many images that very delicate arm of the octopus coming and embracing the diver, the body of, of the spider. So many wonderful images. So expand on that and how we were talking about humility and how poems help us really Tunnel down into some sort of depth of spirit? Well,
2: I think that one of the things poems allow us to recognize is the parity and the interconnection between the most minute and humble and the most large Uh, for lack of a better word, I will say numinous. And so, you know, this poem moves from uh, one thistle leaf to uh, the cosmos we can see in the photographs taken by the Hubble. And this is not a vast separation. This is a vast connection. And I think that is one of the things poetry is almost uniquely able to, to recognize, enact, praise, bring to awareness that nothing is too small, nothing is too large to be brought into one way of meeting, embracing, greeting, being sustained by the full scope of existence.
1: That reminds me, as you're talking uh, about... The power of the small and so forth uh, that there was a poem that you had that went viral uh, that we all just I, I particularly the you know in noticing that which is very small. Uh, I'd love for you to share the the poem uh, when I can do nothing what what it's
2: called what? Today When I Could Do Nothing. Yes. And this was a poem written. Um, so so my, my book, Ledger, came out. Uh, its pub date was March 10th. And that means, as as we poets do, because everybody thinks of poets as sitting quietly at their desks, what we do when a book comes out and we're asked to is we start flying around wildly. So I did a reading in New York City at the 92nd Street Y. I did a reading in Chicago at the Poetry Foundation. I did a reading in Seattle at the magnificent Elliott Bay Bookstore. Seattle at that time was the epicenter of the virus in this country. When I flew home, I was supposed to do a reading at our local bookstore, Book Passage, and that was canceled by them, and everything going forward was canceled. Because I'd been in Seattle and I'd been on a lot of airplanes and in hotel rooms using my hand sanitizer and my disinfectant wipes, you know, every step of the way, I pretty much went into self quarantine on March 12th. But on March 16th, they announced the Bay Area six-county shelter in place, which was the first in the country, beginning March 17th. And I woke up that morning to a deeply quiet world. All of the usual hubbub of civilization was gone. You couldn't hear cars. You couldn't hear construction. Even the airplanes seemed quieter by then. And I sat on my window seat and... Noticed what became this poem. Today, when I could do nothing. Today, when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books. Time, a garden, silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper, as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant. Then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion. Small black ant, alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not move as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand which moved it through swiftness and air. Ant, alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. This first day when I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this.
1: I was so struck by the idea that the part where it's an individual ant. And it's not going back into the place that it left, so to speak. And, and will it find its companions again? Will it be able to hone in? Oh, they're very, very smart, so possibly it will find its nest again. But it made me have compassion for that ant and the, the isolation it might have felt for a moment when it got transferred to some other place.
2: Well, I think that is very much what each of us who was suddenly separated into our own homes without our communities, I think, you know, I might have rescued the ant on any other day as well, but the tenderness I felt for it that day, alone, out of place, separated from its colony, I think that was affected by this large picture and the great contrast between my window seat, me, the newspaper, my laptop, and what I knew was going on in the broader world, and the great suffering of the broader world, which in a human being, and I, I don't take special credit for this. I think in a normal, undamaged human being, when you see suffering, you want to do anything you can to alleviate it. And the only thing I could do was try to give that ant its life back.
1: I'm I'm reminded of uh, a quote from Martin Shaw, who is a storyteller from England and a mythologist. And he, he says, the world pushes you into poetry by withdrawing something, not giving it. The greatest poems are not written by the woman who got the last kiss. They're written by the woman who didn't.
2: This is very true. I, I think poems are, especially for me, perhaps, um, they are life rafts. They are a rope thrown to the person on the cliff ledge. They are acts of rescue. And some of them more obviously than others, some of them more desperately than others, some of them more more lightly and delicately than others. But every good poem that I read in the world feels to me like a recalibration of that ledger of our faith in the living and in the day and the darkness. Thank you. I'm here with
1: Jane Hirschfield, and she is the author of Ledger. And if you want to know more about her work or be in contact, you can go to her Facebook page. Just put Jane Hirschfield in the search box in Facebook, and she spells her last name H-I-R-S-H-F-I-E-L-D, Jane Hirschfeld. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's a poet of nine books of poetry, and her most recent is called Ledger. And um, Jane, I wanted to ask you how to listen to a poem or how to receive a poem, what your advice might be. Sometimes I, I will receive a poem, and sometimes I feel I will use the word bullied by it. It, it. Do you know what I'm talking about when, when that well, occurs? I,
2: I do, and that would be a bad poem. Poems <laughs> should never bully their readers, ever.
1: <laughs> but it's it's like a poem that's saying, here's what you should do, and here's what's wrong, and it's really preaching. And your poetry has has space and silence and music. And uh, and the references are, are little observations that take us to a, a place that expands our ability to see. Uh, so I, I think that if, if it expands our, our view um, beyond the more human world, uh, which we're so engrossed in, um, it helps me, I think. That's why I've been turning to poetry a lot right now during this uh, pandemic. And uh, I, I appreciate your practice of poetry, which reminds me, meditation. How does your, I know that you have a deep meditation practice. How does that
2: inform your poetry? I think my practice of poetry and my practice of Zen meditation are the left foot and the right foot of the same activity, which is basically the wish to be aware, to cultivate awareness, to be open, vulnerable, permeable to this world and its experience without getting in the way of it. And in one form, uh, the kind of Shikantaza meditation, which I do is a wordless, silent meditation. There's no phrases, there's no image being conjured. It is simply a deep presence with what is. The presence of awareness in poetry is a presence that comes through words, through listening for what the world would like to say to me, through me, um, uh, sometimes I feel like a a vehicle for the muse. Uh, sometimes I feel like a seducer of the muse. Mm-hmm. But this book in particular was deeply driven by something you just alluded to, which was the awareness of the beyond human world and our relationship to it, Although also there is a subset of poems in there which are very much about uh, refugees in the Mediterranean, the Syrian civil war, um, the events in America which led to Black Lives Matter. These are not, the human and the beyond human are not separate. We're all part of a single fabric of existence and we need one another. And I suppose that, invitation to the recognition of solidarity was one of the great uh, driving thirsts of the poems in this book. I'm
1: reminded of um, a time that you were participating in a, um, it was a march, and you were in Washington, D.C., I was in Santa Rosa, California at that same March, and it was, uh, it was about science and the uh, importance of science and how we should support science. And
2: Yes, well, one of the things I, that you listed again in your introduction was activism, and there is some activism. And so the poem that you're thinking of on the fifth day was written in defense of scientists on the fifth day of the current administration, which was the day they took all of the climate change information off the White House website and instructed every scientist who was working for the federal government not to speak of their research in public until it had been cleared uh, by the people above them and many of my closest friends are research scientists. I took this just as personally as I would have taken it if the poets had been told we couldn't speak to the public without clearing our words first. And by the end of that day, I had written this poem. Uh, I sent it to three of my scientist friends. They immediately asked if they could send it to others. And the end result of this was that a couple of months later, at the first March for Science in Washington, D.C., I was reading the poem to a crowd of something like forty or 50,000 people on the Washington Mall, with the White House directly ahead of me in the distance and the Washington Monument behind my right shoulder. This is not a position I would have ever imagined myself being in, but... It was a poem written because it had to be read, and it was a poem that was eventually said that publicly because the scientists were so grateful for the poet's support. We don't think of scientists, those of us who grew up when we did in the 60s and the 70s, who would have ever imagined that science would need supporting, let alone by a poet? And suddenly science did. And so, there I was, just saying, solidarity, here we are, I care. Can you share that poem? I would be happy to. Thank you. On the fifth day. On the fifth day, the scientists who studied the rivers were forbidden to speak or to study the rivers. The scientists who studied the air were told not to speak of the air. And the ones who worked for the farmers were silenced, and the ones who worked for the bees. Someone from deep in the badlands began posting facts. The facts were told not to speak and were taken away. The facts, surprised to be taken, were silent. Now it was only the rivers that spoke of the rivers, and only the wind that spoke of its bees while the unpausing factual buds of the fruit trees continued to move toward their fruit. The silence spoke loudly of silence, and the rivers kept speaking of rivers, of boulders and air. Bound to gravity, earless and tongueless, the untested rivers kept speaking. Bus drivers... Shelf-stalkers, code-writers, machinists, accountants, lab techs, cellists, kept speaking. They spoke the fifth day of silence. I, I was very surprised when I read that poem, uh people started cheering at various parts of it. So there was a group of people dressed in bee suits up rather close to the stage, and they suddenly started jumping up and down and waving their bee placards. And, and, and I, I was so startled by that, I almost lost my place and stopped reading. And when I spoke of the Badlands from way back deep in the crowd, there was this roar of scientists who must have come from the Badlands, I don't know. But to have the experience of being of service is a remarkable thing. Exactly. And
1: I, to be a poet, to be interrupted by huge cheers. Um, but I, I was also struck, toward the end of the poem, you mentioned those people who have previously, in, in many ways, been... Unseen and bus drivers, and you mentioned specifically shelf uh, uh, stockers. These these people that that we don't that right now are very very important to our lives during this shelter in place. Uh, And I was struck by almost it was prescient that you pulled that out in that poem at that time.
2: It is quite extraordinary how poems can take on new meanings and new resonances in new circumstances. So yes, now we all recognize those bus drivers are heroes. They are putting themselves at risk so that those who don't own cars but need to go to their work as a shelf stalker, as a nurse, as a doctor, can do that. And the indispensability of every human Every creature has become so clear to us now. There are other poems in the book that also, there's one called Cataclysm, which is about um, the, the disruption of ecosystems and seems to be a rather prescient description of social distancing. It talks about, you know, trees and animals pulling away from each other and sheep unflocking. And Who would have thought that it would be a literal description of something we're all now doing? I had no idea when I wrote the poem. But poems are like that. They are chameleons that open themselves to this moment's needs.
1: And, and that's why so many poems just last through the ages and continue to speak to us. I mean, in the, in the different uh, t- translations that you have co authored or, or co edited, and uh, of, of Rilke or Neruda or others, they, they're just as prescient today as they were in their time.
2: I think if you speak of fundamental things using the materials that are humanly recognizable, the poem knows no border, no boundary of language, of time, of culture. It will simply continue to be able to do its work because we all know what a bee is or the moon is or the wind or a perishable piece of fruit. These things don't change their meanings, and these things do not consider themselves of some nationality or some party or some subset of experience.
1: So that's where it really brings us together, doesn't it? Because it is a commonality there of, of eating a peach, a juicy peach or a uh, or watching the leaves turn in the fall or, or blossom in the spring.
2: These are birthright joys for human beings. And what we wish for ourselves and our family, we need to wish for every person, every family. We're in it together.
1: Definitely. And this is showing, these times are showing us more and more how that is so true. Our interdependence is enormous. Our our whole economy is being stretched and how we could become so aware of that interconnectivity. I knew at some point we needed to, to become more aware and I didn't know how it would come about. And it seems like nature just kind of said, okay, I'll help you. I'll help you with this virus as devastating as it is to the many people that are actually dying or or suffering. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she is a poet and author of Ledger, a book of poetry. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's a poet and author of Ledger. And in the previous segment, Jane, we were talking about science and and how your work marries science and poetry. And um, they both investigate. They both are an investigation, and they both are safeguards of truth in some way. And I, I would love for you to to speak to that simpatico between
2: poetry and science. Well, this has become an increasing theme in my own life. Um, As I said earlier, many of my closest friends are research scientists. One of the great joys for for the launch of this book was uh, that I got to be a guest on Science Friday for it, which, you know, how many many poets get get to be on Science Friday? I also, coming out of that original um, poem that I just read and what became a collaboration with the March for Science, I helped found a very small organization called Poets for Science, which is housed at Kent State's WIC Poetry Center. And it is a place that um, uh, the WIC is dedicated to bringing poetry forward in public spaces to non-poets in inventive and original and absolutely seductive ways. Uh, It collaborates with the nursing school at Kent State, but Poets for Science as a project, uh, which is a bunch of human-sized banners of poems, 21 poems uh, with different areas of science as their topic, by something like 18 different poets, have gone to uh, Prescott, Arizona, to a Natural History Institute, to Vanderbilt University, to Pioneer Works in Brooklyn, New York for a big event, uh, to John Muir's house in Martinez, uh, to Portland, Oregon for a large convention. And the number of people who come and say, I thought I was the only one who was interested in poetry and science is quite astonishing. Uh, I loved at the March for Science the, the expressions on the scientists' faces when they saw this tent plastered with words and would come over and start reading a poem like and Zimborska's poem about the number pi. And their faces would soften and change into wonder and then delight that... Somebody could write such a great poem about the number pi, which they had their own reasons for loving, or a poem about an MRI machine, or a poem about the Hubble telescope, or, you know, on and on and on. And so for me also, these two ways of knowing the world, each of which is investigative, each of which is interested in speaking accurately of our experience of existence, How arm-in-arm they travel just never ceases to amaze me. It's a vocabulary that expands my understanding of the world to have a word like catalyst, to have reagent, to have nature polypeptide B, and to put that into a poem. Uh, That's an earlier book. That's in The Beauty. It's the protein that carries the experience of itch. Um, I just... My world is larger for the descriptions that scientists bring to it. And my health is better, and my house stands up, and all of, you know, and and poems in turn help the house of the psyches of the scientists, their hearts and minds and bodies and their own navigation of their human lives, stand up um, and, and know itself more fully.
1: I, I love that. I love that. I mean we're we're learning something. Oh I, I know I've I've actually read some of your poems that include science and and then there'll be a word or something and I'll say it out loud and oh that sounds wonderful and then I go to Google and I look it up and and then it just starts expanding and expanding and and so it's a whole education <laughs> as well as a heartfelt thing uh so i i I love it that that you use science and and expand our our again i say expanding the lens through which we see the world and and it's less so compartmentalized like science over here and poetry over here it's like you're blending these it's like a wonderful uh a soup
2: that is perfectly blended with these flavors. Both disciplines are instruments of discovery, and human beings are instruments of discovery. It is one of our fundamental joys. Exactly. Now, we've talked
1: about several poems, uh, the poem of praise, uh, poem of despair, you know, that teeter-totter. But there are other poems in the book that, that also give another View another, uh, I would say, facet of the the jewel that we are all looking at on this planet as we move through our lives. Can you um, can you share another poem? This is one of one of my favorites. It really spoke to
2: me. Uh, called Vest oh, I would be delighted to read Vest. Um, If we're we're talking about multiplicity, it's the perfect poem to speak of multiplicity by. And and, many of my poems, people often will say, um, how did you ever think of that? And I think, oh, I'm much more boring than you're giving me credit for. I wrote a poem about a vest with many pockets in it because I own one and I wear it all the time. And I go camping in it and I go on airplanes with it. So it's a quite literal, actual vest. Um, uh, And yet it is the job of poets to take literal, actual things and bring out their depths of meaning and possibility. It's what we like to do most. So vest. I put on again the vest of many pockets. It is easy to forget which holds the reading glasses, which the small pen, which the house keys, the compass and whistle, the passport. To forget at last for weeks even the pocket holding the day of digging a place for my sister's ashes. The one holding the day where someone will soon enough put my own to misplace the pocket of touching the walls at Auschwitz would seem impossible. It is not. To misplace for a decade the pocket of tears. I rummage and rummage transfers from Munich, from Melbourne to Oslo, a receipt for a Singapore copy, a device holding music, Bach, Garcia, Richter, Porter, Pert. A woman long dead now gave me, when I told her I could not sing, a kazoo. Now in a pocket. Somewhere, a pocket holding a Steinway. Somewhere, a pocket holding a packet of salt. Borgesian vest vest. Oxford English Dictionary Vest with a magnifying glass tucked inside one snap-closed pocket, Wikipedia Vest, Rosetta Vest, Enigma Vest of Decoding. How is it one person can carry your weight for a lifetime, one person slip into your open arms for a lifetime, who was given the world and hunted for tissues for chapstick? Jane,
1: it just takes us to uh, each of us as we, we rummage through our purses and found that that uh, transfer from Munich to or Melbourne, and we suddenly were are stopped in our tracks in in a memory. It's it become, it just starts to invade our senses, not only memory but our, our the smell of of it uh, of the place it's reminding us or the the remembering of the the touch of someone i i know there's another poem where you end up somewhere in it where you you go to that place of childhood when when we were in little footed uh pajamas
2: oh yes now,
1: uh this really invokes a. Uh, a whole lifetime of experiences that we hold within our psyche and being and heart. I'm just so moved by it. And I I just thank you for bringing to us so many of these kinds of images that just cause us to take a deep breath, relax our being, and just sink into it. Thank you so much. Um, Is there anything that you could say now that we're coming toward the end of this conversation which i regrettably say is much too short uh that you'd like to share in this last moment how long a last moment how long a last moment it's like about uh, one minute one minute
2: um i suppose what i would like to say is I'm going to read you for my last statement a shorter poem which speaks about solidarity. Um, I'd like to close with this one. It's called Like Others. In the end, I was like others, a person, sometimes embarrassed, sometimes afraid. When fire was shouted, some ran toward it, some away. I, neck deep, among them. Mm. This Mm. is the place I would like to inhabit as a poet, as a person. I want to be neck deep in the fates of my fellow beings. And if I can do that, and if I can speak any word that brings anybody a sense of companionship, then perhaps I will have done my work in this world. Thank you so much, Jane.
1: I've been speaking with Jane Hirschfield, and she's the author of Ledger. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her Facebook page. Just put Jane Hirschfield in the search box, uh, and she spells her last name, H-I-R-S-H, F-I-E-L-D, Jane Hirschfield. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3702.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge